is very much the grand finale to a lengthy and deeply profound discourse in John's Gospel, which has taken us all the way from John chapter 13, right the way through to the end of this chapter, the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. Insofar as the last word of Jesus to these disciples is concerned, you might say that these are the last words of the last word. And therefore, they hold a particular significance, not only for those disciples, but also for us disciples today. Now, we also note, and though this is perhaps patently obvious to you, that what we have in John chapter 17 specifically is unlike the previous didactic material that we have in John. Because these words did not come to these disciples in a direct way. No, the disciples, who are presumably within earshot of Jesus, are listening in over the shoulder as he is praying and taking note of his petitions. Of course, it wasn't unusual to find Jesus in this posture. Why, it was very much the pattern throughout Jesus' ministry, particularly before significant events in his life, to find the Lord Jesus in intense prayer. And yet the disciples, no doubt, were impressed by the peculiar richness and depth of this prayer, the so-called high priestly prayer. Now, it's almost criminal to divide a prayer of this profundity, but you can divide it, distinguish it into three sections if you look at it. First of all, as we considered this morning, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Following this, he then widens the scope of the prayer, and he prays for his disciples, these particular men who were accompanying him at this point. And he does that in verses 6 to 19. But from verse 20 onwards, there is a shift in focus again, as Jesus broadens his focus to a much larger group of people. And he prays for all believers. Meaning that if you are a Christian tonight, if you belong to the church of Jesus Christ this evening, then these words provide a glimpse into what Jesus prays for you. It's really a remarkable study for us tonight. Now, in these seven verses, which are just packed with material, let me suggest three things at least which Jesus prays for in relation to the church. And we will see, though, that they don't terminate on the church. They relate to the church, but they do not end with the church. And you'll see what I mean as we go through. And they can't be separated, these three things, because they build upon each other. This is very much a progressive prayer. So let me summarize them briefly, just for clarity, as we begin. Firstly, Jesus prays, For the church directly. And he prays specifically for the unity of the church. Then Jesus prays for the world. For the coming to faith of the world. As the world sees the unity of the church. Now that's absolutely key in this prayer. And then as a result of this. The church united. The world persuaded. Jesus prays, finally, for his own glory to be seen. 
And he pleads that it might be appreciated in the future as it was even before the beginning of time. Now, hopefully this will become clearer as we make our way through. But that's where we're going this evening. That's where Jesus is heading in this prayer. Now, I do encourage you to keep your Bible open in front of you or reopen it if you've closed it at John 17 and to consider the interpretation of this. We begin with the fact that Jesus prays for the church and he prays for the church that it might be united, a united church. And let's be clear about who the target group are in this prayer. They are identified in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That is for his disciples who were with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, this is a whole lot of people. Jesus is praying for all the people who will ever believe in him at every point in history from this point. He's praying for everyone who will ever trust in him at any juncture in human history. Meaning that this prayer is a prayer for the church universal. Indeed, you could say that it is a prayer for this church tonight. And what is the core of the prayer? What is the, the very heart of what the prayer is about? Well, in a single word, the prayer is about unity. Or, as Jesus otherwise describes it, being one. Here we think that Jesus is not concerned for this. We note that he prays for it three times over in only three verses. 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. And again in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity. Clearly, unity is a big deal in this prayer. But what exactly does Jesus mean when he speaks about unity? What precisely does Jesus have in mind when he prays that his disciples might be one? Well, Jesus describes what this unity is. He defines it. And he says this. Unity is defined for us by the relationship between the Father and the Son. You see that he says that in verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He says, if you want to know what unity is, don't open up your dictionary and look up the word unity. Open up the pages of your Bible. Look to the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And in the relationship between Jesus and the Father, you will see unity. Now, one thing we can say about it is clearly an intimate unity. An intimate relationship that Jesus and the Father has at the most fundamental level. And it is a mutual relationship. Of course, in some ways, it's impossible for us to describe it or fathom it. But this profound union is sometimes described in John's Gospel in the terms that the Father is in the Son. So, back in John 14, Jesus urging his disciples to believe that he has been sent from God. And he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He says the Father is in the Son. 
And moreover, as he also says, the Son is in the Father. To the degree that when we see the Father working, we're seeing the Son at work. And when we hear the Son speaking, we're hearing the Father as well. Now, lest we be mistaken, and we must be careful here, the Father and the Son are nevertheless distinguishable. They're not some indissoluble mixture. You know, you can't tell one from the other. Even in this chapter, note closely that Jesus is praying to the Father. They are distinct, even though they are linked together. But yet this union, this deep sharing of life and values and priorities, Jesus says, this is what I am praying will be reflected in the life of my people, in the life of the church. And to that we might say, well, how? How on earth is this possible? How could we achieve this God-like unity in the church? Surely it's beyond our abilities to be united like that. And yet Jesus says that it's not so. Because Jesus adds something that is simply astounding. He says not only is the unity of the church defined by the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's the model. He also says that the church is actually included within the relationship between the Father and the Son. See verse 21, he prays for this. May they also be in us. Now, think about this. It's hard to come to terms with this, but it's important. What Jesus is saying is that the Father and the Son's relationship isn't just something that the church admires, though it is. It is also something that the church is admitted to. In other words, it's not just our paradigm. It is something within which we are part. Because through the death of Jesus, through the resurrection, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, we now share in this profound connection with the Father and the Son, which also connects us to each other. As a result, you see, there's a vertical relationship which hinges upon a horizontal relationship. Now, let me try to illustrate this. We had a family funeral a couple of months ago. It was a, an aunt in her family. And uh, she was an aunt of my father's. And some family members uh, who were there at the funeral, some of them were distant relations, hadn't seen each other for 15, even 20 years. And uh, my father was having a conversation with one of his distant cousins. And they were musing over the fact that before this aunt's long illness, she and her husband had been the figureheads of the family. And on many occasions, they had regularly invited the, the disparate family together for Sunday lunch every couple of weeks. And it was this vertical dimension that held the Broad family together as a unit. And when the, the vertical aspect was removed, the horizontal relationships disbanded. People never saw much of each other. And you see, what Jesus is saying is that it is exactly the same with us. We are joined together as a church on a horizontal level because we participate in this shared vertical relationship. We have the one God and Father over us all. It's a wonderful thing to contemplate this. Despite all the church's differences, 
All the diversity in geography and history over the centuries. There has only ever been one church, one body, one God and Father of his church. And therefore, at the deepest level, this prayer has been answered fundamentally. And is being answered today as people are added to that one church. Now, of course, here's the sad thing. In practical terms, in the outworking of that unity, Jesus is often grieved. Because there's a difference, sadly, between our essential unity and the external outworking of it. Just ask the the husband or wife who are in marriage trouble. Why they're inseparably linked by God who has joined them together. And yet in practical terms, they are miles apart. Think of that family where the the children are squabbling. They're knocking lumps out of each other. The parent arrives and says, come on, kids. That's your brother. That's your sister. You've got the same surname. Start acting as though you are part of the same family. I think that was why Paul, when he wrote to the Philippian Christians, urged them to maintain the unity that they already had. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any fellowship with the Spirit, he's saying you already have these things, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So let me ask you this evening, Do you care, as Jesus does, about the unity of his church? In a day when there are a reputed 22,000 Protestant denominations, does it bother you that between churches and within churches, our unity is often not what it might be? little test for you. Do you regularly thank God, not only for your individual salvation, as wonderful as that is, but for your place in the corporate body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your church, that I can be part of that. You see, if Jesus is important to us, then his priority for church unity should matter to us. And then something will follow from that, as Jesus outlines. Because, you see, Jesus' prayer for a united church is not an end in itself. This unity is further defined for us as we understand its purpose. And Jesus prays that the church might be united in order that the world might be persuaded. That's the second part of this progressive prayer. Verse 21, he says, I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Here's the reason. So that the world may believe That you have sent me. And in verse 23, he says something similar. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me. So here's the rub. The reality or lack of reality in our unity will have a direct bearing on our fruitfulness in disciple making as a church. In our ability to fulfill the Great Commission. It matters intensely. Bruce Milne puts it like this. And this is helpful. Evangelism is a community act. It is the proclamation of a church's relationships. As well as its convictions. And our relationships 
either commend the gospel to people or repels people from the gospel. That's the only two possibilities. Now, this reflects back, of course, on the previous point of our unity. It helps us to understand it better. Because what Jesus seems to assume here, and this perhaps seems surprising to us, is that the unity we share must be visible. If he is saying that our unity will let the world know who he is, then it must be an evident unity, a visible unity, an apparent unity. And believers shouldn't have to look around for it, you know. Check into church files. Uh, find the statements of faith and see that we've all signed up to the same thing. Of course, our unity shouldn't be less than that. But it should be more than that. And I'm not suggesting that in a very superficial, even hypocritical way, we make a show of unity. But surely on the basis of this prayer, there is some demand for visible, tangible evidence, not infrequently seen, that we care for each other. That we respect each other and love each other. And that we're on the same team as each other. Because when it is clear, it has a wonderful validating effect. That's what Jesus says. It commends him, the person of Jesus, that you sent me, Father. And it confirms the fact that the church are the recipients of God's love. The love of the Father. And you have loved them. You see, this is the biggest barrier to evangelism in 2006. It's not a lack of church expertise. It's not a lack of Bible knowledge or right techniques or outdated techniques. The biggest problem is lovelessness within the relationships that are in the church. Things like gossip are the problem. Negative criticism, unforgiving attitudes, jealousy are much more damaging to our witness than anything else as they emanate from people who claim to have experienced the love of God. You know, a few weeks ago, Peter was preaching on John chapter 16 and the hatred that we will experience in the world. And someone was joking with me afterwards. Uh, But I think with a hint of seriousness, he said, you know, I'm not so much afraid of being hated by the world. It's the hatred of the church I'm more concerned about. And you know, often it's true, isn't it? We can be our own worst enemies. Let's face it, let's be honest, it sometimes can be easier to love our non-Christian friends. I mean, you don't get to choose your Christian family, but you do get to choose your non-Christian friends. And you probably don't expect very high standards of your non-Christian friends. But we expect things from Christians. We're disappointed when they let us down. And in any case, we're not trying to witness to our fellow Christians. And so we're not so careful, are we? But here's the thing. We cannot lower our standards with each other without enormous detrimental effect to our witness outside these walls. That's what Jesus is saying. And so I ask myself, and I ask you this evening, is my attitude to other Christians hindering our witness to a non-Christian world? Am I compelling unbelieving friends towards Christ or repelling them from him, not least because of my attitude towards other believers? Not only because evangelism is at stake, though it is, but also because of something even greater 
than evangelism. Remember, again, this is a progressive prayer. Each part builds on what's gone before. And you see, there is an ultimate reason, according to Jesus, why church unity is important. Why evangelization is important. And here's the reason. That thirdly, the Son might be glorified. The ultimate petition, verse 24, to see my glory. Now again, it's important to put this within its context. Because this takes us right back to the very first verse of this chapter. We've come full circle. You remember at the beginning of the chapter? In view of the fact that the hour has come for him, Jesus prays for his own glory. Nearing the end of his earthly ministry, he's about to embark on the final and most daunting task. The sands of time are running out of the hourglass before the cross. And at this moment, Jesus looks beyond the cross. He looks to the distant future and he prays for lasting results from his work. Again, this relates to the church, but it doesn't finish with the church. He prays, first of all, notice, verse 24, that the church will be where Jesus is. He says, I want this to be the end result. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Beyond my death and my resurrection and my ascension and at the time of my second coming, may the church I have died for be with me. It's a fulfillment of the promise back in John 14, remember? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I don't know what your home situation is. Maybe uh, you live with your family at the moment or perhaps with a spouse. Maybe you live in your own. Perhaps you're in a transition period and all the difficulty that that can bring in the stress. But if you're a Christian, then here's something you can be certain of. There is a day coming when you will live in immediate proximity to Jesus. And Jesus will live in immediate proximity to you. And therefore, as part of Christ's church, you will see who Jesus is in all his greatness. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You see, even these first disciples had not seen the full picture. Of course, on the one hand, they could say, we have seen his glory. John chapter 1 verse 14. But they had not witnessed that glory in its full splendor. The glory of Jesus. When he was on earth, it was partially veiled. And the same is true for us, of course. We have seen the glory of Christ in measure. You say, where have we seen Jesus' glory then? Well, verse 22, Jesus speaks of the glory that you have given them. He's describing the revelation of himself, of who he is. And we now have that picture for us in the Gospels, where we see something of the splendor of Christ in his teaching and in his miracles and in his death and in his resurrection and ascension. And what is more, as Jesus also says in verse 26, we now have the spirit of Jesus living within us. That the love you have for them may be in them, And that I myself may be in them through the Holy Spirit. And because of these things, 
We can see Jesus' glory, but only in part. But there is a day of glory coming when we will no longer live by sight, by faith, for we will have sight in that day. We shall see Jesus in his resplendent glory. And even despite the fact of verse 25, that the world does not believe, even though today as well, many won't and don't believe in Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have made you known to them. Not everyone believes this Jesus, but these disciples do. And what is more, from my throne in heaven, I will have a present and continuous ministry through the Spirit of revealing God to people. I will continue to make you known. And the purpose, again, is so that in 2006, we might be passionate for God's glory. As passionate as he is passionate for it. I wonder if you've considered that God is intensely concerned about his own glory. That he is more concerned about it than anything else in the world. In John's Gospel, it is Jesus' desire to glorify the Father, and it is the Father's desire to glorify the Son. In a sense, that's what it's all about. So what is your desire tonight? What is it that you're aiming at? It's all you do for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Or is there some other glory, some other trophy, some other plan that you have? See, there can't be a greater prize or treasure than the glory of God's Son. We're almost finished. Of course, we can't exhaust this prayer in its depth. And as wonderful as it is, though, I'd like to suggest as we finish that it is even more wonderful when you consider what follows the prayer. What comes next after Jesus completes this particular prayer? See, sometimes after we have prayed something, we even second-guess ourselves almost straight away. But Jesus is so committed, he is so passionate about the goals of this prayer, that he arises from the prayer to begin fulfilling it. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples. He crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove. And he and his disciples went into it. And Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the grove, getting a detachment of soldiers. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus didn't know what was coming? Jesus knew what was coming. But he also knew that by his death and through this prayer, the church would be united, the world would be persuaded, and he would be glorified in the world. So here's what I'm asking myself this evening, and you tonight, and what I'll be thinking about this week. Are we as committed to the goals of this prayer, as Jesus was. Do we yearn for a united church? Is that the top of our priorities? Do we pine for a persuaded world? And would we sacrifice anything and everything to see something more of the glory of Christ? These are immense challenges. And this is the immense prayer of Jesus.
Let's come before God now.